0: Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying kick it my way, I wanna jump over the pack and here he comes! for the lead of Stengel. Gee, G there good. G there sharp. That's Razzle good, Dazzle yeah. Rioli. Oh, who else? McDonald T oh, from inside the center square. time of day everybody this is episode 97 of americans watching the footy i am ethan castle coming to you from south san francisco california i'm benjamin castle also coming to you from south san francisco california before we get underway with the actual footy discussion i do have some unfortunate news to share i would like to take a brief moment of silence in honor of the passing of a radio legend that being noted Paul Feinbaum caller Phyllis from Mulga, who passed away after a battle with COPD. She will be missed, and I just wanted to honor her because the Paul Feinbaum show is awesome, and if you don't know what it is, I'm sure you'd enjoy it. I'm sure you'd be fascinated by it. So I just wanted to take a moment to honor her. Thank you. Unfortunately, we don't have, you know, any cool mascot minute silence photos to add, but the Paul Feinbaum show, if you don't know about it, I mean, I'm not sure how much American college football has traction in Australia, if at all. Think of your, like the most exaggerated version of the American South possible. And that is the Paul Feinbaum show. It's multiple hours a day, exclusively talking about football in one conference. And The callers are characters, and Phyllis was one of the biggest of them. It's four hours, five days a week. It's simulcast on TV. You can just sit there and watch a man answer the phone, basically, and it's awesome. The callers are insane, and unfortunately, a couple of more memorable ones have left us in the last couple of years. First, Tammy from Clanton, and now Phyllis from Mulga. Stingray Steve doesn't really call in much anymore, but he does post his own content to various platforms. He's amazing. Highly recommend you check out like some of his OG Mississippi State rants. Especially if you want to know what America is, that's what America is all about. Oh yeah, and one time Apple CEO Tim Cook called in, that's Tim Apple to you, because he attended Auburn University. All right, this round didn't really have any like dramatic close games, but there was some drama still. There were some interesting themes that we'll be able to get into. I mean, the biggest drama probably was one of the games on Saturday night. And remember, this round had a little bit of a different schedule because there were only two games on Sunday on Mother's Day. So we had the Friday doubleheader to kick things off. Richmond, 16-6, 102, defeating Geelong, 11-12, 78. I'm annoyed that the Cats won't get another crack at Richmond this season because they didn't get to play with a healthy team and unfortunately it caught up to them in this game. Then again, Richmond weren't at full depth. Either they weren't, you know, as depleted as they were earlier on, but their younger pieces showed well again. Samson Ride is continuing to build really nicely and more about him and his whole cohort later, actually, because that was something that kind of goes toward the end of the broadcast a little bit. But yeah, this just never felt like a game the Cavs were going to win, even though there were regularly opportunities for them to get back in it. They could never, like, get that next goal to really put the heat on. It started with kicking 2-7 in the first quarter and just coming out flat, giving up the first couple goals of the third was huge, so they went into half down just 10, and then the lead got up as big as 36 a couple of times, and just, just frustrating that they're not going to get another chance at them. But that said, Richmond did deserve to win this game. Richmond fought through Geelong having an early advantage in clearances. They were taking advantage of the Cats being flat-footed at times in defense and just were better movers of the ball throughout the night. Yes, accurate goal-kicking was a big part of Richmond's victory, but the pressure they put on in the midfield made me kind of think that this game still was won in the middle of the ground. I think they kind of won it up and down. Um, John's defense was not great. Jake Colajashny was pretty lousy. Tom Stewart had a surprisingly sloppy game. On the other side, Tom Hawkins was great, but but Jeremy Cameron was not going to be God every week, and he did not play all that well, and Nathan Broad really put the clamps on him, which I didn't see coming at all. No, I didn't either. I don't think of Broad as being that great one-on-one guy. I think of him as being kind of a looser defender at times, one of the longer kicks out of the back six. I don't remember him having this good of a game at fullback in a very long time. Maybe he plays as a better fullback when he's clean shaven. Noticed that about him when he came back from his suspension. Clearly got his head on straight. Also, Noah Balta got into things after really getting his ass handed to him in the opening minutes by Tom Hawkins, so a lot of credit there. Balta had been really struggling for a lot of this season. This is the first time really that I saw him start off a game poorly and then work his way back into it. Daniel Rioli just continues to be unbelievably smooth as a ball mover as well as just starting possession chains, tackling whatever you need him to do. It's just very seamless. He's one of those dudes where no matter what the occasion is, he looks like he's just so comfortable and like he's been playing around the same guys for his whole life. This was also easily the best game of the year looking further up the ground for one Dustin Martin, who knows how to rise to the occasion against the Cats. And just like in that 2020 grand final, he kicked four goals, had 4-1 from 19 disposals at nine marks, For a lot of this year, you hadn't really looked out for Dusty as that main threat, and that's really been the case ever since he was moved to full forward for a lot of last year, but he was patrolling the whole ground really well, was more toward the end of a lot of chains, obviously, because he was playing more of that 450 game, but he was part of Richmond putting it all together in this one. Also, Ben Miller played his best game of the year by far. I was thinking at some point, the Cats were able to just play an ordinary game and wait for Richmond to fuck up, and Richmond just didn't do that. They didn't beat themselves. Also noticed Ryan Mansell was really physically ready to take on challenges, and just the Tigers didn't give the Cats a lot of room to operate. They ended up with 16 more tackles, although Zlong did record 7 more tackles inside 50. A couple other interesting notes about this game. First time since round 2 in 2020, the Cats had the younger team, was by all of 27 days, but that's a 77-game run, which is historic in itself, and Richmond were the less mistake-prone team. Um, Unfortunately, Brandon Parfit didn't rise to the occasion. There was really an opportunity for him, and he did not step up. I don't know what it's going to take to get him going, because the talent is obviously there, but we have not been able to see that lately, and it's to the point where like, I don't know if he should even be in there for however long Patrick Dangerfield's out. John Seglar is just not good, and considering that they weren't facing Tobin and Kervis or anything, I would have just played Blitzov's. I know not having De Koning makes it tough, but they could have made something up in the aggregate there. I just, Seglar just doesn't have it. Uh, Jacob Hoffer, really solid. Able to just stick with guys, never get like outrun or left looking lost. And Brian Myers was a nice positive for the Cats. My criticism, there have been a couple times lately where like he's really trying to get an assist instead of just take a shot himself that maybe he should be taking. But his performance overall has been very nice. He's been one of the best pieces on this team, if not the best, and has been like as far from one of the problems this team has as we could possibly go. It's just annoying because like I said, only chance to play Richmond this season. Unless you somehow land them in finals, which will require a lot of different things to happen. It would require Richmond to continue in good form because they still just stand at 3 5 and 1. They look a lot better and a lot more disciplined, though. But I'm just, that's completely sure to be tough going into face what's suddenly an in-form Frio team. More on that in a bit. But talk about the Cats' upcoming schedule. Yeah. Richmond has Dreamtime next. Yeah, they've won 13 straight against Essendon. That is tied for the longest active head-to-head streak in the league with... Melbourne over the Suns? Uh, no, Port Adelaide over the Suns. Melbourne have won 11 straight against the Suns. Ah, right. The only other double-digit streak I see here is the Cats up to 10 over North. But I'm largely at peace with this loss. It's annoying. you expect that they were going to be a little out of their depth in this one. I still thought it was a winnable game, and it was frustrating that they didn't capitalize on the chances that could have made it into a really winnable game. They needed to do that early, and they didn't. But this isn't one that, you know, it's just, you got me. You didn't have your healthiest team. At some point over the course of the year, health isn't going to be as good. You know, both teams that made the grand final last year had great health luck generally, and that's just the odds of that happening year in and year out in any form of football. That's just That's just not going to happen. Looking at Richmond's schedule beyond Dreamtime, I mean, I don't see them having it easy through June. They host Port, Round 11, and that game tends to deliver in some fashion. Then don't sleep on the Giants. They're being a challenge in Round 12. That one is at the show round. They go out west to Frio, Round 13, to kill to before the bye, and come out of the bye, going to the Gaba. So it's not going to come easy for them. No, but by winning these last couple, they've put themselves... In position to get themselves in position to—I I know I've used that term a lot lately, but I think it's—it's it's been fitting. Unsurprising that Tim Tarano and Jaden Short were possession leaders for the Tigers. Tarano, who I captained again this week, and I was correct in that move. Highest scorer on my fantasy team, he had 28 disposals, 13 contested possessions, and 12 tackles. Short with 26 disposals, nine marks, and gaining 714 meters. Daniel Rioli kicking 1-1 from 23 disposals and gaining 513 meters. Liam Baker, one of his most active intercepting games, 10 intercepts to go along with 21 disposals. Baker is another member of my fantasy squad, and I felt, and I think that's a really smart pickup for me. Braun with 11 intercepts and a 19 disposal game. Candon McIntosh, 8 marks from 19 disposals. Noah Balta also 8 marks and 11 intercepts from 17 disposals. Free kicks in this one were plus 7 to Richmond. Part of that being a bit of a cleaner game, but also, you know, not great umpiring either way. Yeah, I thought, look, it didn't decide the game, but a couple of better calls probably helped the Caps get in position to, you know, have an opportunity to make things interesting. And I think you probably could have admittedly expected some of that just like, you know, with the Tom Stewart bump still on everyone's mind. By the way, calling it a bump kind of like undersells it. Oh, it, it totally undersells it, but that like, not just that one in particular, but like any any play that's called a bump. That just, it doesn't make it sound like a significant problem. Like when you think of bumping someone, what? You think of like nudging past them on the street. So that's just, that the one term doesn't do it. What do you call it, like a crash or something? A crash would be a at least a more dramatic term that would get, that would kind of be more emblematic of the i that he crashed into him and concussed him. I could get behind that. That actually would totally work. Geelong were plus 15 in clearances and plus 11 from stoppage, but Richmond's pressure was higher all night. As you mentioned, Ethan, they were plus 16 in tackles and also plus 17 in 1%. percenters. They were just doing the small things all over the ground. I will say this, that they did so well in clearances without Danger Field is really nice and going to be tough to carry that over to next week. But there are things to take away from this game. This isn't, you know, one of those losses where it's like flush it, never do this again. Like they're, there were building blocks. Looking this is at, not a terrible loss. Looking at those clearances, actually, Saylor was a was a joint leader for the game with six, along with Toronto Bolton and Tom Atkins for the Cats. So it was spread out. The clearance success for Geelong: Myers, Mitch Duncan had five, Myers and Tanner Rune with four each. Rune had a really nice fourth quarter. This could have been like a 50, 60 point loss, honestly, the way it was trending and. Bruin has been a good fourth-quarter player, and you, you know, if you're going to be a successful team, you need good fourth-quarter players. Mitch Duncan led the team with 25 disposals. He also had a goal and 10 marks. Tom Atkins, 24 disposals, including 15 contested possessions. He was one of those guys who you know needs to pick up some of where field's out, and he definitely did that. Tom Stewart, I didn't think he did that well defending one-on-one, but he did rack up his 24 disposals, 11 marks and 545 meters. Isaac Smith, a goal in 23 disposals. Brian Myers, two behinds, 21 disposals, 11 score involvements. And I didn't think much of Jed Muse but he still racked up 10 intercepts to go with his 14 disposals. Also, I don't know if we mentioned, but roaming Brian after the game, you know, I'm not going to watch much of it after a loss, but the clip with Samson Ryan's mom was great. I, I was waiting to, to mention that until the end. It wasn't just his mom, it was his girlfriend as well. Of course, Brian was, like, fascinated by him having a family, which is such an important part of roaming Brian. I also just love the the interaction that he had with Samson Ryan's girlfriend, Lily. I believe she said that that Samson's mom was plastered but lovely. I did not notice that part. I just saw the highlight of him with Samson's mom. But the whole thing was fun. You know, it's it's a great segment as much as people can rag on bt for his commentating style and how you can clearly see his biases for richmond and collingwood when he's on point with his roaming it's some of the best entertainment in the game because he enjoys what he's doing as i've said before i i will say there were times late in the game where he was acting like the cats still had a chance like now and you after this game you could tell i was also they're not collingwood so I ended up watching a lot of the Coast Clash on delay because I was working pretty early Friday morning. But I honestly didn't miss all that much. We don't have to get into great depth about this game. I've got some interesting things to say, though. I think so. It was West Coast six seven forty three defeated by Gold Coast sixteen seventeen one thirteen. Suns continuing their good form. I mean, I'll take the first and third quarters from the Eagles because I mean. It wasn't high scoring for the Eagles in those quarters, but they won those two quarters combined by a little bit. They were energized to start the game and coming out of the rooms at halftime, which was nice. And some of the younger pieces were part of that. I mean, I guess Greg Clark is someone that I think of as being younger, even though he's a mature age recruit and is actually 25. But this is one of the games where I really enjoyed watching Clark in particular. He had that a lot of desire to be on the ball, to start the second half, and it led to some good things right away. But the Suns continued their good work. They consistently created from intercepts and turnovers, and they took on contests wherever they came in the forward half. Now, the Suns are a good clearance team, but they didn't have to impose their will solely from those clearances. They were able to punish Eagles' mistakes really well and really took the game at whatever terms it came to them. And that's something that I noticed as a quality of some of the best sides in the league. You could see that out of Geelong at times last year when they were playing some of their tougher opponents. Collingwood could certainly do that when they have to close out games late. And for the Suns to do that is a really good sign, honestly. Yes, it came against the Eagles, so take that with however much salt you want, whether it's a couple grains or the entire mine. But it's been a trend for Gold Coast these past few weeks. You know, they did it against Melbourne and nearly won. So all of a sudden, the Suns could be considered to be back in things a little bit. They're 4-5 and and they've got... Q clash coming up. They'll probably lose that because it's Q clash. I will never pick them to win one of those until I see them do it. I would have to see them win two in a row, maybe. And then they've got, and then they've got the two games up in Darwin against the Dogs and the Crows. And then coming out of the bye, heck, that game against the Blues at Marvel looks damn winnable, which I didn't think I would say at the start of the year, but it, it's there for them, despite. The rough start they had despite that loss to Freo and Norwood really hurting them. They're playing the right way now, and that's despite Tuke Miller still being out. Matt Rowell and Noah Anderson have more than made up for him in a lot of ways. Rowell's tackling and clearance work have both been top-notch. been a captain Rowell this week, yeah. I have to next week. I guess so. I mean, Rowell was the biggest reason the Suns dominated that second quarter, taking that eight goals to one. And then Noah Anderson is more of the, the freer-running player. While Raul does the work in the guts. Those two were leading possession getters for the Suns. Raul had 17 tackles in this one. I was trying to count the tackles between him and Ruben Jinby throughout the game. Hoping Jinby would at least be able to get a win on the tackle count. But Raul got it in the end. And the other big performer that I noted for the Suns is someone who set a record in this game. Charlie Ballard has been One of the strongest one-on-one defenders all year. I'm surprised that he wasn't more highly regarded coming into the season. I think, again, that more of the talk coming into the season around Gold Coast defense probably centered around Sam Collins and me complaining that Caleb Graham isn't in there, which I will still complain about. But uh, Ballard won throughout against Jack Darling, although, you know, Darling also broke his arm and kept playing despite it. Yeah, the injury situation for the Eagles does not get better. And also, Jermaine Jones broke his nose. So just more casualties for West Coast. It's become a fact of life. Matt Rowell, a goal, 29 disposals, 17 tackles, 10 score involvements, 610 meters gain. He basically just said, fuck it, I'm going to get Tukes possessions while still tackling like I do. And maybe get Tukes tackles too. Noah Anderson, behind, 27 disposals, 8 clearances. Bailey Humphrey had that game a couple weeks ago where he was just awful and got subbed out. He's back into form, and I mean, inconsistency should be expected with young players. He kicked 1-1 off 20 disposals. Will Powell, 20 disposals. David Swallow, 2 goals, 20 disposals, 9 tackles, 7 clearances. Rory Atkins has really shown up lately. 18 disposals and 8 marks. Charlie Ballard, 15 disposals, 12 intercepts, 11 marks, including 10 intercept marks. That ties an AFL record. Ben King for three off 15 disposals and seven marks. The Suns with just over twice as many inside fifties, 63 to 31. They're also way more efficient inside 50, 54% to 41.9. They won clearances by 11. They won contested marks by 11, 19 to 8. And, I mean, I know the Eagles have a more winnable game next week against Hawthorne, which is really going to be the first of the Harley Reed Cups, but it's just... I want the Eagles to be healthy enough to be worthwhile viewing. Look, no team is going to be successful with the level of injuries the Eagles have, but for it to be a team that doesn't have a great list to begin with and basically has no depth, that's just, and unfortunately makes them unwatchable. And you'd think at some point that injury lock has to turn around, and when it does, you know, they would at least be a couple spots better on the ladder. I want to know at this point, with the, the kind of soft tissue and hamstring injuries a lot of Eagles have had, is it something with the medical department, with strength and conditioning? I would love to see an external review into, into that side of the club because it's been a problem over the past couple of years. I remember once a long time ago, the Green Bay Packers fired, I think it was Mike Sherman, after a 3-13 season, and season. It was like, why are you firing the coach? Shouldn't you be firing the training staff? The difference is the Eagles both fired the coach. Adam Simpson and Trevor Nisbet's jobs are so secure, Nisbet being the CEO, that I don't think they're going to do anything anything unless you get a couple more seasons of this and Harley Reed gets drafted and goes away after two years. Like you look at, you know, the Ravens training staff came under a lot of fire, for example, and deservedly so because guys couldn't stay healthy. So I think those things are all worth giving some thought to. I feel like I have given it more thought on the West Coast of the United States than the Eagles have in the West Coast of Australia. Notable individual stat lines for the Eagles. Liam Duggan with 32 disposals and gaining 662 meters. He continues to be just a really hard worker, along with Tim Kelly, who kicked 1-1 from 26 disposals and 17 contested possessions. Alex Witherden had 26 disposals and gained 591 meters, but haven't thought he's played super cleanly as of late. Dom Sheed with 21, and Ruben Divi only 12 disposals, but 16 tackles. He is fun to watch, and that's one of the biggest things I've gotten out of this season from the Eagles. Just, I like watching him. I've liked watching Jermaine Jones, although he's now hurt. When I tweeted about this game, you know, give me a little recap. I said my favorite Eagles to watch were Kelly, Jimmy, Clark, and Oscar Allen, who kept his multi-goal streak alive. He has the only remaining streak of two or more goals a game this season. Imagine what he could be on a team that is actually healthy and competent. You said something about... Kelly's quotes when he was being interviewed at the start at halftime oh yeah he was just he was very pissed off and you know not at the questions being asked by Matthew Pavish they were perfectly valid questions he was just not pleased with the effort and where the scoreboard was and I like that frustration being aired and he did everything he could to reverse some of that and you know try to inspire some some of his teammates with his effort but it's going to be hard to convince Players, young and old, to give it their all when you're getting creeped like this every week. It should be easier to convince the young guys that are getting their first taste of it, but well, they should be out to the pub fighting for their spots, and hopefully, they are. Hopefully, that's something on Adam Simpson and the coaches' minds. Sydney 13 8 86 defeated by Fremantle 16 7 103. This was your assignment, so I, I'm and you said coming into the round, this was the game you were most looking forward to for the entirety of this nine-game slate? Did it live up to your expectations? Not in terms of, you know, down to the wire drama or desperation, but in terms of I learned a lot. Like, I think this is one of those rounds that largely gave you more answers than questions. Most of the questions are like, how's the ladder going to shake out instead of questioning teams? I guess there's still questions about the Swans, but they've been hit hard by injuries. Frio have completely figured things out in the forward group. Luke Jackson's really getting comfortable. I think this was probably his best game yet, and he was damn good a week earlier, too. Well, Jackson isn't the only part of the answer. Josh Tracy adds so much. He's not a great player, but he's such an important element. He was the missing piece. He stands at 193, so 6'4", and and so he adds some tall depth along with Jackson and Giannis, and he's... More physical, more willing to really use his body in marking contests. We saw him take a nice one over Tom Hickey in this game, which partially got me thinking about that. But Tracy has been someone that Three Metal saw a lot, and clearly he was the seventh pick of the 2021 rookie draft, and I think he's really taken the spot that was vacated by Matt Tabiner long term at this point. I hope that's the case anyway, because they really found something there. Like I've said, sucks for Tabner that injuries have left a lot of his career as a what-if, because, I mean, that was due to, you see him back seven pretty regularly, but it's just it's just not happening the way things are health-wise for him. The two plays that really stood out to me, there was one where Tracy sent a kick in for Luke Jackson that Jackson couldn't mark, but he was able to hush Nick Blakey into Aaron Francis and then handballed through a tackle to give Michael Frederick a goal. And then the play that really summed it up was one where he was trying to take a mark. He couldn't mark it, but like three defenders crowded around him and that allowed Caleb Sarong to handball to Lockie Schultz to put it away. Another really good game from Lockie Schultz. And, you know, some people talk about Victorian bias in some ways. If Lockie Schultz were playing in Victoria, his name and face would be everywhere. Who was the Port Adelaide player that we had that sort of discussion about a couple of weeks ago? Was it maybe Dan Houston? I, I, I want to say it was. Schultz is a complete forward who played a great game. And yeah, if he was in Victoria, people would realize it. Swans did make one push after getting down by 31. They got the last three of the third quarter. They got the first goal of fourth, cut it to 10. Pathley goal, he's all fired up. But then Dockers were able to restore things. Now Fife was in as the sub again, and he went through Hayden Young, who... I still don't think it's had a great year, but is playing better to set up a Josh Tracy goal. Jai Amis had a nice mark on Aaron Francis. Schultz scored a little bit later, and all of a sudden they were back up 30, and it was a 30-point game with 519 left. The Swans scored their last two goals, both inside the final 15 seconds, so not as close as the score indicated, but there was a moment in the fourth quarter where it looked like they were going to make a real charge. So both teams entered this game at three and five, and now three and six. You know, the Swans are on the outside looking in at this point in terms of the finals discussion, and they've got the toughest schedule in the league. So how do you see things shaping up for Sydney as they get back to full health? They've got better stretch over these next couple weeks with North and Carlton, and then they got, and then toughens up with the Saints and the trip to the Gabba after that. That Carlton game heading into the bye, which is a Friday nighter, could be huge. But yeah, other than one game against the Eagles in the second Sydney Derby, like their second half schedule is fucking insane. And of course, we've learned to not underestimate that Sydney Derby because look what happened in the first one. Quick positives for the Swans. Like, look, they're dealing with a lot of injuries. They had very good luck staying healthy last year. They have not had that this year. Callum Mills got hurt really early in this game, which was one of the reasons I won my fantasy matchup this week. Sorry, Steez. I'm on a nice little five-game winning streak after losing my round four matchup by seven. So feeling pretty good right now. Uh, six and three in third on the ladder. There are two others at six and three, but I've got the best percentage out of those by a bit. You played me in a couple rounds. You'll Your luck's been good. Uh, so my swans takes real quick. Other than Bills getting hurt, I mean, you were talking about positives. Justin McInerney played a really inspired game to keep him close. I still love James Robottom. Like, if James Robottom and Tom Atkins had a baby, it would be the grittiest baby of all time. Like, it, it, a newborn could already be an NFL fullback. That's how gritty this baby would be. You know, a real lunch pail guy, a real pros pro. He would have a tremendous grit about him. I think Mark Sheather, even though he isn't perfect yet, He's starting to get things figured out. Unfortunately, Nick Blakey has just had an awful year. Like, yes, no McCartens means he has to go match up with dudes like Luke Jackson that he has no business matching up against. And Mills getting hurt too factored into that even more. But he needs to be able to start playing from the back. And he just hasn't done that. He has not looked good with or without the ball. And Buddy just looks finished. I hope he finishes on a more graceful note because this has been rough. Um, there was a play in the second quarter where Jordan Clark had a really bad turnover. Hayden McLean kicked to Buddy. Originally, Alex Pierce thought he had intercepted it. He handed it back to Buddy after realizing Mark was given to Buddy. And then Buddy tried to play on for no reason and ran straight into a tackle. And there goes your easy goal. And instead, it's free-o ball. Speaking of Alex Pierce, most captain-like he's looked. And James Aish had a nice game. So... Eight positives there. I think Frio really figured it out, and I'm not looking forward to facing them next week. Yeah, good couple weeks for both Aish and Pierce, and yeah, Dockers host the Cats this coming around. That is a that is the middle Saturday game. All right, so the entire footy world can be focusing on that one for most of its duration. Um, yeah, have fun with that. Frio stats, Caleb Sarong, two behinds, 33 disposals, 10 score involvements, eight clearances, 660 meters gained. Andrew Brayshaw, I didn't think he was great, but still 31 disposals and 7 clearances. Jader O'Meara, 27 disposals and 8 tackles. I think he's really put himself under the pump because going into that Hawthorne game a couple weeks ago, he talked about how he hadn't lived up to his own expectations to start the season, and he's gotten back into form. Hayden Young, 23 disposals. Luke Ryan, 19 disposals and 10 marks. Sean Darcy got... Ten coaches' votes. More on coaches' votes in a minute. But forty-four hitouts, eighteen disposals, fourteen contested possessions, nine clearances. Luke Jackson also had eleven hitouts to go with his seventeen disposals and three goals. Lockie Schultz, four goals of behind and fourteen disposals. My my one criticism of Frio was it was still way too easy to just beat him through the corridor and get easy chances and high percentage kicks out of that. So that's that's something that i hope they wait a week and then clean up i i think their defense is still more structured than the actual personnel but uh and they're definitely playing better what's weird is that sydney were by far the more efficient team in terms of disposals inside 50 52.3% to the dockers 42.6 they were that was mostly fueled by the first quarter where frio had chance after chance and ended up trailing 19 to 7 Inside 50s for the first quarter were 16-7, so that that's really where that advantage stemmed from. Darcy's dominance in the rug did end up translating to a clearance success, partially from him, but just in general, Dockers were plus 13 in clearance and plus 11 in the center. Rare to see the Swan so thoroughly beaten there. When I went back and watched this game, the swan I noticed the most was Errol Golden, and for good reason. Really smooth player overall, taking 2-1 from 39 disposals, 8 clearances and 637 meters gained. I do believe that within 5 years, Errol Golden will be the Swans captain. Yes, his numbers did include a share of uncontested possessions, but he played quite well. He was not the reason they lost. Luke Parker with 27 disposals. Chad Warner behind from 25 and 7 tackles. Jake Lloyd ventured forward for a goal. Had 24 disposals and 8 marks. James Rowbottom a goal from 23. 15 contested possessions and 9 clearances. That's... Honestly, a pretty typical game from him. Isaac Keeney, two goals from 18 disposals. And then Nick Blakey and Aaron Francis had 10 intercepts each. Francis with eight marks. But as we touched on with Blakey in particular, I didn't think either of them played great games in any fashion. Now about the coaches votes for this one. So yeah, this was fun. This was the first time ever. Thank you, Swamp, for this. That the votes were distributed with 10 votes to one player. That being Sean Darcy. So... Coaches agreeing on the five, and then the others going 4 1, 3 2, 2 3, 1 4, because Lockheed Schultz, Luke Jackson, Errol Golden, and Caleb Sarong each got five votes. I mean, I, I don't know how to judge that. It's just weirdness that it was the same players that got those votes and that so many of them were reversed. I can't imagine that the two Jay Long coaches talked about this, but they had an interesting mind melt there. Also, this wasn't the only game of the round where. Only five players got coaches votes. More on that toward the end of things. All right. This next game does not deserve much attention. Similar to West Coast versus Gold Coast. Very similar. Same margin. 70 points. But oh. uh, basically, a lot of times the first quarter is the feeling out period. And then the second quarter, the better team shows up. North yeah. Melbourne, 10 5 Defeated by Fort Adelaide, 20-15-135. Uh... Benjamin, please do this in the most concise manner possible. Yeah, I was actually going to say, you know, second quarter is when teams tend to show their true colors, particularly the bad teams tend to show how ugly their footy can be. And North just were not clean throughout this game. North Melbourne Football Club, forever unclean. (laughs) That was good. That, That got me. That was funny. Thank you for saying that. Referencing another great American football-related thing, the league. Yeah, if you've never watched this show, watch it. It's fucking hysterical. Kind of a satire on how overly serious some people take their fantasy leagues. It's also just a really funny show that generated a lot of cultural references. Like, the Turing-Eskimo brothers got its start there, apparently, which I had no idea about. Here's another way in which the Coast Clash and what I called the Bergman-Brother-Blundstone battle were similar. Try saying that five times fast. Bergman, brother, Bloodstone battle. Bergman, brother, Bloodstone battle. Bergman, brother, Bloodstone battle. I already, already messed up the third time. You got for two. You did? Yeah, I don't think anybody thought about that for this game because it took me until the second quarter to remember, wait, Miller Bergman's also playing because Miles had a nice start to the year and he was one of the most visible players for Port, even though Jason Horn Francis was also there. The two of them look similar, as a lot of people have learned. But another way in which Northern Port was similar to the Coast Clash, the away team won the second quarter eight goals to one. And the away team had scored 11 goals at halftime in both cases. It was way too easy for Port to attack through the corridor. Miles Bergman and Connor Rosie carved up the Kangas, and the North mids often looked uninspired. They didn't look willing to defend. Meanwhile, Zach Butters had a nose for the ball all over the Oval. Was worried about him last week because of a potential knee injury, but he looks fine and was the leading possession getter for Port with 32 disposals. He had 12 score involvements, nine marks, seven intercepts and gained 495 meters. Rosie with 25 disposals and six clearances. Both really solid enablers all over the ground. Should note Bergman as well with 21 disposals, 11 intercepts, 10 marks and 588 meters. He's been venturing across the ground in full as of late, and it's been a nicer adi- and it's been a nice addition to Port's game in a lot of senses. This was just a dominant game for Port as a whole. And I mean, I'm just going to go into the rest of the stats at this point because you've got a taste for what else really end up standing out from this game with that. Um Ollie Wines had a goal to go along with his rectangular head, 22 disposals, eight tackles and seven clearances. Jeremy Finlayson kicked 3-5 from 20 disposals. Dan Houston also had 20 disposals. Port were a more efficient team with the ball in hand throughout the ground. They were nearly 58% on disposal efficiency inside 50. Again, North looked unable and unwilling at times to defend some of those faster runs, and they hardly cracked 40% inside 50 efficiency themselves. North dominated the hitouts plus 39 in that, 63 to 24. But Port were plus 13 in center clearances. They committed 13 fewer turnovers. They tackled way more. And Port also tied a club record with 14 different goal kickers, and that's the first time they've accomplished that away from South Australia. I mean, I think that was pretty concise there in my thoughts on that. Just Port did what they needed to do. They've now won six in a row going into a really, really high-profile Friday night clash against the D's. You know what? I didn't mention, actually, that Todd Marshall got concussed. And yeah, that's pretty damn notable. Marshall suffered his second concussion of the year after getting some high contact in the middle of the first quarter. So they're going to have to make up for that, and I think they'll have the pieces for Charlie Dixon is looking like he should be back, and Ollie Lord had a nice game. And if Jeremy Finlayson can be a little more accurate, that'll be nice for them as well. A lot of the usual suspects were the better players for North, or at least the busier players. I think they were better as well. Luke Davies Uniac with 29 disposals, 18 contested possessions, and 8 clearances. Jack Zebel 27 disposals, and 12 intercepts. Jai Simpkin, 26 disposals. And Todd Goldstein, 56 hitouts, 24 disposals, 18 contested possessions, and 11 clearances. So, nice to see him doing his thing. It hurts that Goldstein is suffering this much in terms of the kind of team that he's on this late in his career. I really admire him for being willing to stick it out with North. The man deserves better. I was waiting to notice Cam Zerhar a bit in this game, and I did notice him a bit getting more involved in the third quarter. But uh, yeah, he's not going to think back fondly on this game, especially because Jason Horn-Francis kicked a couple goals, and actually Zerhar got fined for some misconduct against Horn-Francis as well. Yeah, that was another thing I enjoyed about this game, just Horn Francis and Port having their way. Horn Francis did not really do anything to draw attention to himself. He just went up and played good football, which is what he's done the past month plus. I mean, look, sometimes I love drama. I love shit-talking. I love shit-housery. But sometimes you just want to see dudes go out and do their thing, and this is a situation that really called for that. And... He he stood up to it. So, great job, Horn Francis. As always, you can follow us on Twitter and YouTube at Americans Footy. Been more active as of late with the YouTube content that's, you know, not just uploading the podcast audio. I'll see if, you know, there's some shorts material from this past week, maybe. So, I guess we could have people in like Gary Snail, who only like us for our shorts. He only liked me for my shorts! I'm individually on Twitter at BenjaminHK01 and may provide some Eagles takes there from time to time. Ethan's the more interesting Twitter follow, though. I haven't been as active lately, but I'm at Castle Media, and then Grian Harambe, who was running around in here earlier and hopefully made some funny background noise, is, as usual on Instagram, at CatNameGrian. You know, one thing I realized that I could make a short about is Tom Jonas kicking his second career goal, which I did not mention before the break, but... That was his first goal in 166 games, which is the second biggest gap for anyone in league history. Thank you, of course, to Swald for that stat. And it was uh, 3,248 days since his last goal as well. And he also kicked that off one step. I I had hardly been paying attention to that game, but I saw everyone getting around someone after a goal. I was like, wait, what's going on? And then you texted me and it was like, oh, shit. I am, I'm not sure. How I feel about if you should cherry pick for a goal for a guy that doesn't normally get them, or if it has to happen naturally. Like, well, Tom Jonas has now just one off Jake Collage Ashley in the career goal count. Cause I'm thinking of like Sam DeConing's grand final goal last year. And it's like, oh, the, to- the total vulture goal. And I'm, I cannot decide if that's like the best thing or the dumbest thing. Because get a guy a goal because he hasn't had one. It's like, you know, if you were told you had to, include certain words in a podcast and we couldn't think of a way to use them in a sentence at the end just go like, oh, by the way, flippity jibbit. And that, that's kind of like what those are, but also at the same time, it can be funny and I especially love this link. I, I can imagine decoding just telling her I'm like, no, fuck you, I'm getting a gold. I could totally see him doing that. I really hope that's what he did. Getting back into the action, the middle game on Saturday, I mean, I guess even you took the start of this one and we both Slogged through it for most of it. Hawthorne seven seven forty nine defeated by Melbourne fifteen thirteen one hundred three. It was thirty five to one after a quarter. It was fifty four to nine the half. At least Hawthorne had a nice burst out of halftime, just to give us something positive from them. What they did was so smart. I know there's still a ways to go in the season, but their percentage is half a point lower than the Eagles. Is all carefully calculated. If anybody could pull it off, Sam Mitchell. You talk about his coaching genius sometimes. One more goal, and they would have passed them. So, smart stuff there. Uh, I don't really have much to say about this game. Better team won easily. Concerned about Christian Petracca's ankle. It sounds like he'll be able to play through it. That happened right at the end of the game, where it got rolled in a tackle by James Sicily, but he played it off as, as being alright in, the interview afterward, and the next day John Ralph mentioned that Petroc is likely to play on. And again, that's a big one they got this Friday against Port. That's a fun way to start the round coming up. Also, Trent Rivers clearly heard me say he was like their most expendable piece when guys get healthy and really told me to shut the fuck up. Impressive work by him. Full team success for Melbourne from early on. A good way to celebrate Stephen May getting to 200 games. This was also Sam Frost's 150th game, fitting that it came against his four club, and I mean, we did get a little bit of Frost ball in this one. Not anything super notable, but just a somewhat typical Sam Frost game. In the Frio game last week, yeah, way more. I wish I had more constructive things to say about this one. Again, Hawthorne responded with pressure and intent out of the half, and you know, if Only they could have done that from the beginning. I think we could have gauged their skill level a lot better. But the Ds looked very intent on putting away this game early. I liked that. They got the job done. Usually, you know, it takes a couple quarters for that to really happen. And they did it rather quickly and authoritatively. So if there are any teams that can do that week in and week out, Melbourne, Brisbane, and Collingwood can against lesser opponents especially on the offensive end. And the goal scoring and everything was spread out in this one. Makes sense that when you have the chance, you can get as many players involved as possible. Should also know one other, there was a slight injury concern for Harrison Petty when he had his foot stepped on and he was subbed out. Petty was playing more forward again this week. He he wound up mostly kind of in the area around the edge of the forward 50, kicked a couple goals. They were actually just... Three multiple goal kickers in this game, those being Petty, Charlie Spargo, and Bailey Fritch getting back in goal kicking form after having his streak snapped. Clayton Oliver was one of the many players with one goal in this one, had 34 disposals and eight marks. Jack Viney he also had a goal from 31 and 18 contested possessions. He'd got a lot more recognition if Melbourne's midfield wasn't as deep as they were. I mean, he's probably the third most reliable guy in there after Petraka and Oliver, but You know, there's a reason those guys get the buzz they do. They're the flashier players. Oliver tends to do more stoppage. Petraka a little bit further along. Didn't kick a goal in this one, but he had 30 disposals, 12 score involvements, 5 assists, and 584 meters need. 5 assists. That's like a Brian Myers game these days. That might even be better than some of them. It's like an ideal Brian Myers game. Tread Rivers matched his jumper number with 24 disposals. He had 9 intercepts. And a rare goal. Ed Langdon had a goal for twenty-two spells and eight marks. Haven't really fought as much of what he did this year. Maybe it's because they've had another winger to complement him in Lockie Hunter. What a pickup he's been. Melbourne had thirty-three more marks, which shouldn't be surprising considering the style they play. But the twenty-one to five marks inside fifty is something that should be alarming for Hawthorn. Actually. The one negative out of this game from Melbourne, I will say, is that Tom Sparrow got suspended in the game for a sling tackle on Will Day. It wasn't called a free kick, but once you actually saw the wide angle, you can understand why the suspension was given. It's pretty textbook as to what's been handed down from MRO throughout this year. Will Day's been involved in a lot of those dangerous tackles this year, whether he's delivered one or received a couple. Something to watch there, I guess? I don't know, just... Goes hard at the footy. Will Day led Hawthorne with 29 disposals, Connor Nash 27 disposals, James Sicily 27, 10 intercepts, 8 marks, 501 meters, Jai Newcomb, a goal of a hind off 26 disposals, and Blake Hardbook 24 disposals. And actually we just learned that that petty foot thing, that wasn't just precautionary, apparently, because he sprained a ligament in his foot and will be out four weeks at least with that. So So really some opportunities for a few players to maybe crack their way back into the lineup because he was playing forward. Maybe it's a chance for Ben Brown to come back in. Or if you're looking for another swingman type player, easy way to get Tom McDonald back into the action. Moving on, Brisbane 12-15-87, defeating Essendon 6-9-45. Nice. I know, Benjamin, this was your game. Was, Was this game like basically just played in a bowl of soup? I mean, it wasn't wet but it was quite humid. When I took note of the humidity somewhat early on in this one, it was 77% and climbing because there was rain heading into southeast Queensland for the Sunday. Just not great handling of the ball early on in general. Bombers did, for some lines, fumbles early on. They brought the heat from the beginning, and I noted that that was how they got to Melbourne in round five, so I liked that from them. Even though the Bombers were more efficient at getting goals from inside 50s, and they led by... 10 points at the half, 29-19, to the Lions having kicked no goals 5 for the second quarter from 15 inside 50s. I never saw this game as one that I really thought Essendon would be able to hold on and win. Zach Merritt said at halftime in his interview that he didn't think his side had control over the game to begin with. I think they were kind of picking up from Brisbane's mistakes, and once the Lions came out for the second half, it was clear that they were making an effort to be slower, more deliberate in their movement. You saw better kick mark action from them. Ryan Lester had a lot of good kicks from defense that started some of those passages, and Lester had only played a couple games this year, but he's someone I know that had been that next guy up and has been another good depth piece there in defense. It was Harris Andrews controlling the defense of 50 and Essendon struggled to work around him all game. He's at that All-Australian form again. And along with the Lions being more deliberate with their ball movement, for some reason, Eston's pressure didn't return after the half. I don't know if they were trying to stay back and help more in the defensive 50, which was a theme that I saw at times of the first half, but it just wasn't all there. I don't think they'd spent themselves too early. They were somewhat young side. I mean, they've got who can patrol the field and lay tackles at any time. So I don't really know what it was there. But Essendon really couldn't do anything to change the way Brisbane controlled the pace of the game. From my casual view, outsider perspective, I thought Essendon would not be able to stop Brisbane's big forwards. And sure enough, Joe Danaher ripped him a new one. It seemed like first half Brisbane just did a little bit more beating themselves than anything. Although I know you commented that Essendon's first half pressure was really nice. Yeah, I mean, you look at the scoreline, 2-7-19 for the first half. Of course, the Lions beat themselves in some ways there. Looking at a smaller forward matchup, though, Andy McGrath did a good job putting the clamp on Charlie Cameron, which no defender has been able to do all year. Sorry, that's McGrath. Correct. The, the letter T does not exist in in this case. And maybe not even the H. But it was a big game for Danaher. He kicked 6 one had nine marks and 16 disposals. At halftime, did he just feel like the Lions were going to eventually take care of things? Yeah, and that Dan would be a big part of that, not just because it was up against Essendon, but because they don't have the guys that can match up with all the talls, let alone any of them, really, if they're playing at their best, and Joe was on. I noticed that he wasn't really celebrating his goals, though, and I was wondering if that was kind of out of respect for Essendon, everything that they've done for his family, because, I mean, the Danifer family is a storied one at that club, and you see some soccer players doing that where they don't really celebrate a goal if they score against their former club, so just a little point of intrigue there outside the actual game action, I guess. You know, I thought there was a chance that this could have ended up being a situation where Brisbane, you know, they won ugly, but they obviously ended up less ugly, so, some more Lions stats. Unsurprising that Lockheed Neal led the way in disposals with 34. Will Ashcroft with 28 and nine marks. That he is so embedded in this midfield as a first year player, nine games in, I still struggle to fully comprehend. But he looks so seasoned. Hugh McClungidge, 26 disposals and 475 meters. He did kick no goals three, which is part of the inaccuracy issues for the Lions early on. but. They've more than made up for that. Dane Zorko had 25 disposals and 9 marks. Josh Dunkley had 22 disposals, 13 contested possessions. Kadeem Coleman, one of his most after games. 20 disposals, 7 marks and 529 meters gained. Cam Brainer had a goal right after the final siren. Reward for good effort. 20 disposals, 14 contested possessions and 8 score involvements. A full field player that I've really enjoyed watching these past couple years. Nice to see him get a goal when he's been playing further back. Just... He deserves the recognition. Harris Andrews with 12 marks and Ryan Lester with 10 intercepts. Also didn't note his stats because they weren't big, but Zach Bailey had a quiet first half, and then I think was one of Brisbane's best to field after the break. Bailey kicked 2-1 from six tackles, and pretty much everything I noticed from him was in the second half. Why is Ryan Lester froggy? Probably something from a long time ago, considering he's 30. Ooh, I just found a minute-long Facebook video explainer. Hang on, going to watch the video. I'll report back to you in a sec. One minute later. All right, apparently when he was on a trip to Hong Kong, the guys convinced him to get a tattoo of a frog on his ass. And apparently he had had a frog emoji attached to him in some way before that. Something Zorgo came up with a while ago. I, I like it. There's there's some significance to this. Liam's with 31 more inside 50. 69. Nice. To 38. Hitouts did favor the Bobbers, 40-26, to 26, but they also committed 16 more turnovers. And look, if you're Essendon, you're not going to be able to win games where you're committing those turnovers because your defense just isn't going to be able to keep up. That said, I thought their midfield, this is a matchup where they're going to get, like, totally out-muscled because notice a couple weeks earlier that the biggest weakness the Bobbers' midfield has is outside of Striker, really, who's more of a forward at times. They just don't have, like, the muscle and physicality to handle some of those It it's just if they're wearing down late in games like all right so they don't have a lot of muscle and not a lot of endurance there's something really lacking physically there mason redmond had 30 disposals and 10 intercepts game 568 meters zach merritt behind 23 disposals and seven clearances will setterfield 23 disposals 485 meters dyson heppel 21 disposals and 11 marks um I also noticed a lot of people ripping on Nick Hind, which is unfortunate. I think it's just one of those, you know, someone has to be the actual defender, and that ain't him, clearly. He's been good as the sub when he's been able to have a more flexible role, but it just hasn't worked for him actually being that defender. Maybe that's where you'll find a steadier spot for Kane Baldwin, who was in for his first action of the year. So while the Lions were running away with their game at the GABA. What was a slog of a first half at Marble Stadium made way for one of the most watchable and back-and-forth second halves of the year thus far. Carlton ate 11-59, defeated by the Bulldogs 11-13-79, but as Ethan will tell you, the scoreline is not indicative of the way this game flowed at all. Yeah, the game as a whole, I think you could easily argue that Carlton lost this in the first half. Halftime score, Carlton 1-4-10, Bulldogs 4-4-28. And yet, after that, and after trailing 42-11 to 11 in the third, the Blues actually made a game out of this and even briefly took the lead on a couple of occasions in the fourth quarter. I remember, I think it was Sam Walsh's goal that gave them a two-point lead for the first time. It was a four-point lead they were down to at the time. Ah, oh, okay. But I remembered that it was Walsh, and I wasn't watching the game all that closely. But yeah, this this game was kind of bizarre. I didn't think the dogs played all that well. Clearly they played well enough. I thought Carlton were just better at beating themselves, where once again you have shit where guys just are like kicking off the wrong side of the foot and stuff and just badly missing snaps. That sounds like a Harry Mackay thing. Oh, it wasn't just him, though. It was the whole team botlocked who I really like, but did not play well in this game, was pretty much all their forwards except Charlie Curnow, who just largely got held in check. Um, Liam Jones had another really nice defensive game. First game back against the Blues for him. The Bulldogs' midfield was just generally better. Bontempelli and and Libertore were way better than Cripps. Cripps had a pretty quiet game. Every time I looked toward this game, I was actually looking down at it because the Lions game was the one on Fox Sports 2, I noticed Tom Libertore doing something contested. And the goal that he had to give the Dogs back the lead with just over seven and a half minutes remaining, I'm surprised that wasn't, you know, the defining moment of the game because the Blues got the lead back through Charlie Curno. That was one of the times that Charlie had a more advantageous one-on-one matchup. Yeah, Alex Keith, I thought was probably the weakest link for the Dogs in this game. He really didn't take any advantage of being taller in that contest. But the dogs ended up pulling through between Naughton and Arthur Jones, who hit the go-ahead goal with 6.17 left. Had it not been 4-something AM or maybe even 5-something at that point, I would have gone so loud and cheering for the fact that it was Artie Jones that gave him the lead. I love watching this guy. There are two types of football fans. Those that enjoy Artie Jones and those that don't? No. Those that have Artie Jones on their team and those that want him on their team. Dan Strait, he's the fucking best. That's that's really all there is to it. Uh, and then he had a really important handball to set up the next goal. He got the assist on just a, a short handball that got Bailey Smith in stride. And he scored a long goal to put the dogs up eight points. And at that point, I was ready to put the Sharpie on this game for good measure, Jamari Ugolhagen, who had had a pretty quiet game to that point, scored off of an Aaron Naughton setup. That's Artie Jones' best friend, Jamari Uglehagen. Maybe he was inspired by Artie's performance. Charlie Kernow had a chance to get it back within two goals with 3.14 left, but kind of rushed his kick, which really summed up the night for the Blues. Then he had the rare double clanger, a really bad Jacob Wiedering turnover, followed by an even worse Taylor Duray miss. But the Dogs got one last goal anyway because. Artie Jones had a handball to Anthony Scott, who tied for lead goal kickers in this game. I thought he wasn't so much the creator of most of these, but he was the beneficiary. And he played a nice game. And just what do we say about the dogs again? And yet it's they got to have different guys step up. And that is a different guy. Anthony Scott's a different guy. Artie Jones is becoming less of a different guy, but he's not one of the main pieces. So I guess he counts on that front as well. Jason Johannesson continuing his good form. Bailey Williams with an active game. That's Bailey L, but actually W Williams. And all of a sudden, the Dogs have won six of seven. And the one loss was at Port during the gather round, which, look, well, that was going to be a tough game to win. Big game for them coming up this next round, a chance to get revenge on the Crows in, in Balrat, which was the site where they just couldn't kick into the wind last year. Oh, what's the wind going to be like for that game this year? Let's take. I mean, a look. it's hard to find, you know, to know accurately what wind is going to be like that far in advance, but you do know that on a smaller ground without thousands and thousands of rows of seats to block the wind, that it can be more of a factor. Oh boy, it's going to be scattered showers out in the Central Highlands this coming Saturday with wind pushing eastward. Other things, uh, I noticed that Aaron Naughton does not look like someone who's been playing football for a long time. It's like you have a really great athlete and told him, hey, try this. Where like, he's not the most refined player, but he's got so much natural talent that a lot of times it doesn't matter. Now, I know that's not the case, and he has been playing football his whole life, but like he gives that off at times. Never thought of him that way. Maybe I'll look for that this coming week. The coach is starting to figure out how to deploy Rory Law. He had some good defensive acts in his own 50 and got involved in the forward 50. I remember a time where Lob had one of the ugliest set shot run-ups in the league, just like a worse stutter than Josh Kennedy had. He looks like a more composed footballer as a whole now. Things I didn't expect. Matthew Codrell might be Carlton's savior, like he nearly was in this game. He's always been an energized for, and he'd come back from injury through the reserves. I mean, two Matthews did some nice things for them because Matt always kicked three. He wasn't just good in this game. He was like, he nearly seemed their asses. Caughtful that is, I guess. Also, Harry Mackay moving to the wing was a game changer. He's been doing that a lot this year, moving to a wing. Or like a midfield wing position, by the way. Yeah, like midfield wing, a bit of half forward flank. He's always had good hands. I mean, you look at why he won the Coleman in 2021. and You look how many shots he created for himself just by good marking ability. That's when he's been his best all year. And of course, Luke Beveridge didn't really adjust to it, but it ended up working out. They got bailed out by talent more than anything. I think Beveridge is a guy who can implement a really good system in the first place, but I don't think he does a lot very well to adjust it in-game. That seems to check out with everything I've read and gone back to watch about their flag run in 2016, actually. All right, big stats for the Bulldogs. There's a lot of them, up. Huh? Bailey Smith, a goal, 30 disposals, 589 meters. Bailey Dale, 28 disposals, 485 meters. A forgotten all Australian, I, I insist on this. A lot of the smaller dogs have played really well, including him. Uh, Jason Johannesson, just week in, week out. He's been in phenomenal form. Goal, 26 disposals, 676 meters. Tom Liveratore, holy shit. Goal, 26 disposals, 14 contested possessions, 13 clearances, 9 tackles, 478 meters gained. That's probably a three-vote performance. I think so. Bob and was also quite good with 25 disposals and nine tackles. And again, did a really nice job limiting Patrick Cripps. Although, that was by committee. He had a big role in it. Ed Richards, 25 disposals, 10 intercepts, 10 marks, 483 meters. I said that he would really benefit from having Liam Jones playing alongside him. We're seeing that. Caleb Daniel, 23 disposals, 8 clearances. Bailey Williams, a behind, 22 disposals, 12 marks. Tim English did not have a great game. Mark Pitnett did a nice job on him. I mean, English was still involved, but wasn't super pivotal. I believe you tweeted out that it looked like he was playing with oven mitts on. Yeah, he just couldn't mark anything. And that's part of the way. This, this was a sloppy game. Like, they're playing this under a roof, not you know, like a downpour. Pittman helped the Blues win hitouts 53-38. Dodge still won clearances 44-36 and won tackles 64-51. Apparently they lost one percenters, 68 to 56, which just doesn't add up with the visuals of this game, but were there a lot of spoils and smothers that the blues had early on, maybe? Like that could have been it. I don't know. I sometimes that's also just a misleading stat. Some stats are just meaningless. There are times at which I think one percenters really do matter, but I wish they were divided up a little more sometimes when you're looking at those stats. The leader in ranking points for this game was actually Sam Walsh with a goal, 29 disposals, 8 marks, and 622 meters gained. Matt Kennedy behind 27 disposals and 8 clearances. He was actually allowed to play more freely in this one, and he ought to be allowed to do that because he's good. I don't know why Michael Voss tried to shoehorn him into a defending role for a few weeks when he belongs as a follower. Sam Doherty had 26 disposals and 8 marks. Nick, hello. Newman with 23 disposals. Adam Saad. Woof, thank you. 23 disposals and 13 intercepts. I guess Cottrell and Owies didn't have huge stat lines, but the Mats nearly won this game for the Blues. I think you could chalk this one up to, you know, they just, they got too far behind and ran out of gas. Could be one of those. They're now 4-4-1, four, four and one, Carlton. And um, they don't have it easy for the next five games. They got Collingwood next week. That's the Sunday afternoon game on seven. They go to the SCG for the Group game Friday, round 11. They've got the next Friday. That's going to be my birthday game against the D's for round 12. Then they got Essendon and the Suns before the bye. They can really be under the pump here. Uh, a guy that I actually met earlier today, or I guess yesterday at this point, is probably not pleased looking at that upcoming schedule, so one of my jobs, I teach a third, fourth, and fifth grade class for the Sunday school at one of the synagogues in San Francisco, and we had this paddle boating and picnic event out at Stowe Lake and Golden Gate Park in San Francisco, but I noticed while I was out on the water that there was a guy with a Golden Gate ruse hat, and so I saw him back on the shore and asked him about it. He's a Bay Area native but had lived in Melbourne for a time, and I talked with him about his blues and just what I saw with that game that they had just played and where they'd been struggling this year. So, uh, no, hope things get better for them. I'm still not a huge fan of them, but I like that they're not boring. Like, when I was first introduced to footy, I saw them as just, like, all right, boring uniforms, boring song. They have been a really interesting, chaotic team. Was this just a game all around where the coaches let them play and the deeper team won? No, because Voss did make that adjustment to put Makai on the wing, remember? I guess, yeah, but that's something that Mackay could have also done instinctively. I think it's happened a lot this year. No, I think it was an actual coaching adjustment. I'll have to look for how boss might respond to in-game trends these next few weeks heading into the bye That Adelaide, nineteen seven 7 121, defeating St. Kilda, 10-9, Nice! So, I had said for a while the Saints were due for a game where one of their opponents kicked straight and the Crows certainly did. Uh, 6-2 for the first quarter, ten two for the first half. It was also definitely St. Kilda's weakest defensive performance of the year. Dougal Howard got taken to town by Taylor Walker a week after Asava had played really well against Walker. Walker kicking, Walker kicking five straight, part of that good kicking accuracy throughout the game. It was just a matchup that didn't favor him. Tex ended up being just too physical for him, I think. I think it was that simple, yeah? Yeah, his sex was on fire for this game for sure. Also, the Saints missed some relatively easy shots, which got some awesome reactions out of Ross Lyon. There was one with a bad Anthony Caminetti kick. That was his first game back from suspension. He didn't do a ton. Still, though, good to see him back in, and he'll need to continue to have an important role because Tim Memory got concussed. Ended up knocking himself out, going for a mark late in the third quarter, his head hit the turf hard, and you knew it right away. So right as they're about to get back Max King, memories out again for at least a week. And what really sucked was seeing him, like, struggle to balance when he was being helped off, and then he kind of, like, told the people helping him off, like, no, I got this. It was, the whole thing was weird and unnerving. It just, like, is a reminder of the seriousness of head injuries, because this one looked pretty severe right away, whereas others, you know, it's like you find out after the fact a dude's concussed. Now, this was, this was obvious from the beginning. Yeah, it was... Not fun. I was impressed early on by a number of the younger pieces for the Crows. It was Patrick Parnell's first game back. He was a late in for Nick Murray, and he had a fun game to watch, playing mostly in the back third. Plays above his size and above his age. Plays way above how he looks, because he looks 13, which is something that the commentators noted after the game as he was giving out those mini shares. He looked closer to be the age where he would be excited to get those mini-Sharons from players rather than playing in the AFL himself. He also took a hanger early on over Jack Higgins that got me really excited for just seeing him back and being so willing to attack the ball. That's a theme for the Crows' youngsters. They don't hesitate at all to attack the ball. Parnell's like that at the back. Jake Saligo and Luke Pedler are like that from the midfield going forward. Saligo ended up getting a lot of action off from contests in this one The Crows' movement was just really sound. They were creating a lot from the back, and they did a great job in general getting the ball out of contest to space, and that was a team thing. I noticed Saligo on that front, Chase Jones continuing his good form. I tweeted out that in about half a year of game time from the very end of last year into the first nine rounds of this year, my opinions on Chase Jones went from asking what exactly is his strike to, damn, he moves the ball well for halfback. And he can be one of their full-field players as well. He's got a good eye for the goal. But the Crows' structure was there, and the Saints' defense couldn't keep up for this one. It wasn't just Dougal Howard. They, in general, were overwhelmed by how much the Crows won the ball and were sound with their movement. They were strong inside 50. Disposal efficiency there was 64.2%, which is superb. The Saints, just 42.9% there. Perhaps trying to move a bit too quickly for their own good at times. Just... They were due for a crap game, but I'm more impressed with the Crows than I am disappointed in the sapes. I thought Wayne Miller might only be 25, but he delivers like a real veteran presence there that totally changes how the team plays and is a really welcome addition when he's healthy. And I think he's finally back up to his full form. And I think just the theme of the older guys complimenting the young core was the biggest trend in this game. You saw it with Taylor Walker as well. I mean, yes, Walker had those five goals, but it wasn't just him getting the championship for goal. It was spread out between a lot of the younger players. Isaac Rankin with a couple. Joshua Shelley bounced back really nicely after we had a lot of other people questioned whether a game in the twos would do him good. I'm glad he worked it out at the top level. I mean, this to me was very reminiscent of the way the Crows just dominated from the outset in the round. opener against Carlton. Going from contest to space like they did full team effort, if there were doubters from them for these past couple weeks just because they were a bit down, they were playing more difficult opponents, but they played to their strengths again. The question now becomes obviously, can they do it out of state they go to the they go to the Central Highlands this week, looking at their next three road games, Central Highlands this week to play the dogs at the suns and don't sleep on the suns and Collingwood at the G out of the bye. They also host the Lions round 11. Their schedule is going to be really fun the next few weeks. Jordan Dawson, a behind in 33 disposals. Brody Smith, a goal, 32 disposals, 9 marks, seven hundred thirty one meters. Wayne Miller, a 26 disposals. Lachlan Scholl behind, 26 disposals, 8 marks. Patrick Pardell, 25 disposals and 9 marks, one of which was way colder than the other 8. Rory Sloan, 25 disposals. Mitch Hinge, 23 disposals, 8 marks, 566 meters. Rory Laird got subbed down at the start of the fourth quarter, but should be good to go. Was just a precautionary thing after being hit in the chest, I think. He should be fine for next week. He had 22 disposals and 9 tackles. Lachlan Murphy, a goal a behind, 22 disposals, 8 tackles. Isaac Rankin, what a welcome addition he's been. He just adds so much with his speed and creativity. Two goals off 20 disposals. Walker's five goals came with 16 disposals. Also, for the game, the Crows controlled possession to the point where they had 92 more disposals, and they just, they didn't let the Saints suck the life out of the game. They didn't let Ross Lyon do Ross Lyon things, other than, like, the animated reactions. That was the one really Ross Lyon-y thing he did. Saints' stats of note, unfortunately, Matt Crouch did not play in this one, but Brad did and was very active again. 30 disposals, 16 contested possessions, and 7 clearances. I guess it made it easier for His parents to cheer on the Saints, maybe? I don't know. I'm disappointed that we didn't get to see both of them. Hunter Clark had 25 disposals, Jack Sinclair 23. Jack Steele 21, 15 contested possessions, but ended up being taken out of the game late after a knee knock, so something to watch there. Sev Ross had 19 disposals and 8 tackles. Notice a couple errors from him. Jack Higgins did kick 3 goals straight from 18 disposals and 8 marks, but also got stood on by Patrick Parnell. Mason Wood kicked two goals from 18, disposed at 11 marks. Rowan Marshall had 49 hit-outs and eight tackles, continuing to be that active first-rate rough while still retaining his identity elsewhere, which is a good thing to see from him. That, I know that was a concern that we had as, you know, one of many things that we were concerned about with the Saints going into this season. Collingwood, 18-12, 120, defeating Greater Western Sydney, 7-13-55 to close out the round. Really, two main takeaways for this game. Are they Mason Cox and Jordan degoey Uh, no. Well, actually, no. And I've got three now that I look at it. First off, nobody knows what the fuck a high tackle is anymore. You can just grab a dude around the neck sometimes, and that's just okay. I think sometimes umpires are hesitant to pay high tackles because they're looking for players lowering their knees, especially, you know, topical when we're talking about Collinwood because that's a very Jack Gidevan thing to do. I I get that, but this was just kind of... This was kind of over the top. No, that this wasn't a particularly well-umpired game. It didn't impact the result, clearly. Collingwood were due for a blowout win, and GWS were due for a lopsided defeat. Their previous biggest margin in either direction this year, the Giants, was 21. And yeah, Mason played a great game. He was involved everywhere, and it was just really rewarding to see, especially after all of the really strange injuries he's had. Because again, he doesn't have normal injuries. It's not just like, oh yeah, he pulled his hamstring, it's... Something ridiculous has to happen, and he ruptured his spleen. Also great that this came after the 60 minutes piece. Hopefully some more Americans were watching this one in some capacity, whether it was on Watch AFL or Fox Soccer Plus. Unfortunate that because there were only two games on Sunday, this wasn't on either of the Fox Sports channels here. There needs to be a TV deal that gets more Collingwood games onto American TV just for Mason. I it's, it's the way to get American fans involved. You kind of have to. Well, maybe finals will do that for them. And they'll be on TV this coming week when they play Carlton, obviously. Other than that, the only other thing that really was worth noting, uh, Jesse Hogan didn't have issues kicking, but Xavier O'Halloran did. And Bobby Hill had a really cool dribbler early in the game. You knew he was going to get a couple. That, that was the opening goal. He knows just how to, he and a couple other players just know how to craft those rollers for the pocket really well. I could only imagine the kind of reaction Eddie Betts had in that moment. He was the boundary rider for that game, and he's just had some great interactions with Bobby Hill over the years. That first interview that he did with him, I forget if it was before or after one of the Pies games, but just the love that he has for supporting his fellow indigenous athletes is awesome. We need more guys like Eddie Betts, just in general. I noticed uh, Jason Gilby post about how cool it was talking with him as well, and I don't think Jason Gilby's indigenous. No, he's just a milkman. One of the most interesting things about this game, Bobby Hill is a starting point for that also because Collingwood's first four goals were all scored by former GWS listed players. So Bobby Hill had his roller, then Will Hoskin Elliott kicked one after getting a downfield free kick. Bobby had a second, and then Jamie Elliott got Collingwood's fourth goal. No, Jamie Elliott did not ever play for the Giants, but he was pre-listed by them and then traded on to Collingwood in 2011, so it counts. I also want to mention one more Bobby Hill thing. Like, I will complain a lot about the Victorian bias, and here's an example of both the good and bad that comes with Victorian bias. On one hand, him going to Collingwood got him a lot more attention because he's not just a fun player, he seems like a really fun person. On the other hand, he should have been getting that attention all along. Common theme throughout this game was that the Pies were better handlers of the ball. Pies went at 78.9% disposal efficiency for the game compared to the Giants 75.1%. And efficiency inside 50 this was more of a disparity. Again, this stat can be pretty indicative at times. Collingwood 62.7%, Greater Western Sydney 46.9%. That checks out with the vision. Collingwood were cleaner from the beginning. There's a reason they led by 15 after a quarter, 32 at the half. And the result wasn't really ever in doubt in this one. I guess There were like maybe two moments where you kind of looked. I was like, ooh, are they going to do something here? But wasn't anything super dramatic. Collingwood were also the much higher pressuring team. And the GWS pressure was really poor in this game for a lot of it, which, again, they were due for a bad game but 29 tackles for the game. Collingwood had 22 in the second quarter with a minute and a half still left in it when they showed the stat up on screen. At that point, the tackles for the quarter were 22 to two. Any team can pressure. I'm surprised that Adam Kingsley's Giants were doing that. I don't expect that to happen again. The Collingwood individual stats, because we gone over the team stuff. Nick Dacos with 41 disposals at 539 meters gained. He just casually gets 40 so many times. Tom Mitchell with 36 disposals and 9 score involvements. Collingwood fans have had so much fun watching Mitchell be a part of this extremely deep midfield and his touches being way more meaningful than they were these past few years at Hawthorne. And even though I'm by no means a a Collingwood fan, I'm enjoying seeing that as well just purely as a footy fan. Josh Day Dacosigal from 26 disposals and 9 score involvements. Steel side bottom of 25 disposals. John Noble, 24. He's been a player that I've just noticed make smart decisions throughout the game this year rather than showing up purely in clutch moments. I imagine he'll have a clutch moment against the Blues because he tends to do that. Taylor Adams had 20 disposals and 10 score involvements, but I mentioned that Degowie and Cox were the biggest performers in this one. Degowie a goal from 31 disposals, nine score involvements, seven clearances and 496 meters gained. I described him as a can't-miss accelerator of the ball on Twitter, and that's just what he is at his best. And Mason talks, I'm a proud American saying this, 2-1 from 24 hitouts, 19 disposals, and 9 marks. Him being in there helps Collingwood structure so much, just a tall with sure hands like Mason matters anywhere on the field, and I'm glad that he's been allowed to do the roving work that, gives him the opportunities to have those important marks. Mason Cox also had 10 coaches votes, and this was the first perfect coaches vote game this year. Mason with 10, Dewey with eight, Nick Dacos with six, Tom Mitchell with four, and Darcy Moore with two because he's Darcy Moore and is just a sound defensive leader week in and week out. It only took 81 games for us to finally get perfect coaches votes this season. Uh, Rudy Edsel, You could sleep at last. GWS stats. Steven Cadelio, two behinds, 33 disposals. Lockie Ash, a goal, 32 disposals, 10 marks. Tom Green, 30 disposals, 16 contested possessions, 7 clearances. Whereas a lot of Ash's possessions were uncontested. Greens largely were. Lockie Whitfield, 29 disposals and 8 marks. Josh Kelly, a goal and 27 disposals. Hey, you remembered it was Josh it's, it's hard to tell those two apart, but I don't know. I'm trying to just tell myself that like GWS is more likely to have a Josh. Do you remember the Josh fight? Yes. That was awesome. I want to go to a Josh fight, invite like as many Joshes as possible to get in the fight. Nick Haynes, 24 disposals and 12 arts, Finn Callahan, who the broadcasters have really enjoyed. And I didn't realize that He's so young. You know, he was a 2021 draftee. He's, yeah, pick three. He was a Rising Star nominee earlier this year. And he's only 20. He had a goal of behind 22 disposals, eight marks, and 484 meters gained. Getting more and more involved up the field these past few weeks. And then even though Xavier O'Halloran didn't kick well, he was still very involved. Kicked one three off of 16 disposals. All right. Yeah. I don't know how concise that was, but... That felt just like a pretty well-paced discussion. You know, there weren't any down-to-the-wire things where we really had to go play-by-play to the end, but just good talking points. But uh, we're going to close this out as we do with all of our round recaps for Home and Away with our nominees. So, mark of the week. Last week's winner was Matthias Philippo over Darcy Tugger and in front of Miller Bergman. Philippa was also the Rising Star nominee this past week about damn time. Your nominees this week, Josh Tracy over Tom Hickey, and then two, one each way in the Crow Saints game on Sunday, Patrick Parnell over Jack Higgins, and Michito Pepper Owens over Riley O'Brien. Parnell's your winner here, I would say Tracy second, Owens third. No quarrel with that whatsoever, again, Parnell looking so young and being on the small side, be able to take that meep over any player, even if it's one who isn't that big in Higgins, that's just fun, and he got good hang time on that. Yeah, Parnell's small. He's 178 centimeters and 76 kilos, so that's 5'10", 168 pounds. That's very small for an AFL player. Goal of the week, round eight winner is the Brody Majacek goal. I don't think you need to describe it in detail. It's just the Brody Majacek goal. If you haven't seen it, how have you not seen it? Is that the clubhouse leader for goal of the year? Or is it no, because Ashcroft the week before was really good, too? I, I'd be happy if either of those win it. I think it will be by a check, but I don't know. I I might give a slight edge to Ashcroft at this point. None of the goals this week will top, you know, what we had around six through eight, but we still had good ones. So, Ethan, what are the nominees? You've got Paul Curtis with North's first goal of the second half, I believe it was. Yeah, that was it. He received a handball from Miller, not Miles Bergman, then sold candy on Miles, not Miller Bergman, and fended off Riley Bonner before kicking a left-foot roller. The fend-off that Curtis had on Bonner actually helped propel him toward goal, which was cool. You had Isaac Heaney with the last goal of the third quarter, where he kind of ended up picking up the ball off his own marking contest, bounced off of Jordan Clark, and shook off Ethan Hughes before snapping. And then you had Bobby Hill with Collingwood's first goal of the game, the first goal of the game, period. A roller at a 73 degree angle, which that's my pick. I completely understand that from the fact that it was an awesome kick. He didn't end up creating the scoring chance himself. It was Steel sidebot of the Jack Crisp keeping that play alive on the boundary. I love those complete plays as awesome as Hill's kick was. So I actually gave my vote to Isaac Keeney for this one, but I will have no issue with Bobby winning this as I expect him to. The reason I really like the hill kick is, first off, that was by design. You gotta have balls to do that. And second, the way he kicked it, he only hit, like, the very top of the ball with the underside of his boot. So, like, there was clearly a lot of intent to what he was doing. Oh, by the way, speaking of the Brody Maya check goal, he blew away the record for... Margin of victory in the goal of the week competition. Marcus Bonapeli back in round 15 of 2014 had 92% of the votes. Mayacek had 98% this week. That's like that's like a West African election result. All right, finally, main character. I think, yeah, had a lot of worthy candidates for this round. Last round, nothing was that good. Your winner was inaccurate Sunday kicking. Teams combined to kick 54-78. On Sunday of round eight, and even though Essendon had the best goal to behind ratio, they kicked two six in the last. So I'm going to read off what I believe are honorable mentions, and then give the winner. What the fuck is a high tackle? You had that Collingwood fan who looked like Jesus. They showed him a number of times. Just got good reactions out of him. He was waving a flag. He looked like like he had just crawled out of you know hiding in a hole for a while. Uh, you had Joe Danaher for scoring six on Essendon. We learned a new term this week, dacking. Yeah, in America, we just call that pantsing somebody, but you had Aaron Cadman getting pantsed by Nathan Murphy, then hitting Nathan Murphy, and Murphy gets a free kick out of it. Our winner, though, is going to be a different ass crack moment. It's the Luke Jackson goal, where he got his pants pulled down and scored anyway. I loved that whoever was calling the game, can't remember off the top of my head, Someone on the broadcast team called it a cheeky finish. Yeah. Nick Blakey pulled his pants down, and I guess he could call it holding the ball, but I didn't think so. Didn't stand out to me. I just thought he was able to work through it. Yeah. Yeah, he was able to work through the tackle and kick the goal and then promptly pulled his pants back up. I think pants altogether could be the main character, but i am going with Luke Jackson in particular between him playing well, the importance of this game, and the pants goal. I don't mind that. In a lot of other circumstances, had we not had that moment, I would have been shocked that Joe Danaher wasn't the main character kicking six against his forward team, but that game was over pretty quickly in the second half, while Sydney and Frio was much more of a compelling watch, at least into the fourth quarter, and Jackson's deserving of being a main character for a good reason with what he's done the past month. That's all for our round nine recap. Uh, These next two rounds, just you look at the actual list of matchups, and it's going to be really spicy. And I'm really excited for it. This round was like, it looked kind of spicy on paper, didn't end up being. But like I said, it was a round where I think we learned more than, you know, leaving with more questions and answers. These next couple rounds, though, are juicy, particularly Round ten, you got the uh, Yardapoldi versus Narm opener to start off. This is Doug Nichols' round, and it doesn't really slow down from there. The dogs out in Ballarat against Adelaide Dockers, Cats Dreamtime Q Clash, Carlton versus Collingwood. I mean, we'll go through them all obviously in our next episode, which will be our ninety eighth. That's almost a hundred. Don't forget, we are on Twitter at Footy. I am on Twitter at Castles Media. I am on Twitter at BenjaminHK01. If you didn't know by now, our last name starts with a K. A lot of people still get that wrong. Like, even when you tell someone, like, yeah, my reservation is Castle with a K. I was like, I don't see it. Did you look under K? This happens way more than you'd think. And Brian Harambe is on Instagram at cast name Brian. All right. Bye, y'all.